And we can see that at the same time as all of these fantastic bills of rights were being drawn up, you know, it was a time of massive slavery and massive colonialism where, so, you know, the, the, the universal rights of man were, you know, from the very outset when they were written down, just absolutely not applicable to all people because some people just weren't human enough. Salams, peace and blessings. You're listening to Breaking Binaries Season 2 with me, your host, Sahaim Manzal Khan, known online as the Brown Hijabi. As a society, we're obsessed with explaining our world through the use of straightforward opposing categories. So, good or bad, moderate or radical, pretty or ugly, victim or villain, the list goes on. All these sets of binaries, though, tend to be quite superficial, and they hide the real complexities, the politics and the nuances of how we've been encouraged to think. Following from the conversations of season one, every episode this series, I'll be sitting down with a different friend to break down, break apart, and interrogate a different binary and see how doing so helps us think more critically about ourselves and our world, and therefore, how we transform it. For this week's conversation, I sat down with a really good old friend who has chosen to remain anonymous. We talked about the binary of fascist and liberal, which seems increasingly relevant in the times we're living in and especially in light of the recent US presidential win of Biden. A lot of people are hailing this as a huge victory and the end of fascism, and I think this podcast will help us to think more critically about that, although our focus is not the USA and we managed to cover a lot of other contexts, primarily Britain and Sweden. So I hope you find it useful and I hope you find it as insightful and exciting as I did. So... Welcome to season two Breaking Binaries. I'm so glad to have you here at last. It's been a long time coming. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I am excited. I feel like we both have loads to say. Um, so I feel like this is something we can just jump straight in on. Um, today's binary uh, is something that I think in this moment, in this global pandemic, you know, increasing refugee crisis, um, economic pandemonium, um, wow. <laughs> like just all, <laughs> everything we're seeing across the world. I think it feels just more relevant than ever. It feels like we're going to have so much to say. And I, I don't necessarily know that this conversation will be structured in the same way that all the other ones are, because I just think there's so much to cover. So just going to open the door and see what happens. Today's binary is fascist and liberal. Both those terms, I think, can be quite loaded. Um, they can be used in ways where it's like, oh, you're such a fascist, oh, you're such a liberal, right? And they just become these very, like, pejorative, put-down, like, flat terms. So I think an important start point is just, like, what what actually is a liberal? What actually is a fascist? You know, who is one? Where do I find one? What does it mean to be one? Um, can Can I ask you to start there and maybe give us just some, like, groundwork? Yeah, I think when we talk about liberals, uh, we're talking about liberalism, the dominant kind of political, philosophical ideology in Europe, America, what we call the West. Um, At its core, we've got a liberal democracy, we've got rule of law, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, civil liberties, um, but also the free market and the criminal justice system, just kind of the way in which we do things, crucially focusing on kind of the freedom of the individual, or that's how it is put, right? right? So that's generally what we talk about when 
we're talking about liberals and liberalism. Right. right, right, right. And I think, I mean, in the British context, I think that kind of stems as well from this whole like, like liberalism, capital L liberalism, you know, this was like a, yeah. an ideology of politics. And yeah, I think that we kind of have this narrative in Britain and more broadly in the West or Western Europe that is these ideas came from, you know, a moment about 200, 300 years ago yeah. where we kind of invented these great, great concepts and we love them. And that's what being a liberal is. Yeah. So, and, and now they're kind of just a natural way of organizing all of our institutions, everyday life, um, and encode, you know, they're coded into human rights and just everything, you know, it, yeah. it's, it's everywhere from the enlightenment onwards. And we hear that a lot, right? We hear like, um, you know, a threat to our liberal values, to our democracy, to our yeah. this, this, this. And I think that, yeah, that's a really helpful way of broadly conceptualizing it. So in that case then, who are the fascists? Where are the fascists? And what are the fascists? I think the fascists are the bad guys, you know, the ones who are always painted out to be the bad guys. They are um, far right, often racist, nationalist, authoritarian. Historically, we think of Mussolini in Italy, Hitler in Germany. Um, but, you know, today or like in recent times in Britain, you probably hear more about the EDL, the BNP a few years ago, um, maybe even UKIP. So it's kind of like far right authoritarian trends, what we call fascist. And basically, it's the opposite of the individual freedom for the individual, right? It's it's the, the, the lack of that freedom mm. and the lack of those basic rights. And that's interesting, though, because already I'm starting to see a blur in the binary in the sense that you know, the EDL's rhetoric or kind of far-right rhetoric is often about preserving and protecting these freedoms that, you know, are what make Britain so great. Yeah. So that, that then begins to... These people presumably don't see themselves as fascists, right? Fasc- not, the people yeah. who are called fascists in the mainstream aren't people who would say, you know, put their hands up mm-hmm. and say, yes, I am a fascist. Because mm-hmm. it's not... No one wants to be a fascist, right? Being a fascist is always the bad thing to be. So I think, I think yeah, yeah. So there, there is a case where... Obviously, the EDL wouldn't call themselves fascist, but maybe they would kind of use a similar rhetoric to be protecting freedoms. You know what I mean? So, yeah. So already, I guess, within each of those categories, there's ways that like you might, they might not necessarily be seen so oppositional. And I guess it's, it feels important just because you gave the examples of like Mussolini and Hitler that uh, nationalism and yeah. nationalism and fascism go seem to go really hand yeah. in hand and a yeah. kind of idea of like possession over that nation or kind of like who yeah, an extreme form of that nationalism i'd say yeah right right so very much to do with yeah who be- who the land belongs to and who the yeah. resources of the place the people of the place defining what that place is because in world war ii i'm just thinking about the classic rhetoric we yeah. have it's like nazis trying to take our freedom they invade france britain saves the french say you know the usa saves everybody and everybody's free in the end and freedom won and that's why we have to yeah. be grateful yeah. to our war heroes because freedom prevails <laughs> you know yeah it comes down to that classic binary of freedom and lack of it so because I, I think the way they would be put against each other liberals and fascists is also about um who the state is for and i think liberals would very much say that look we're creating uh, a state for everybody you know we believe in equal opportunity we believe in equality it's probably what a liberal would say whereas they would be very clear with note that the fascist in being so nationalist in being so racist is very much opposed to these liberal ideas of kind of diversity equality equal opportunity so i think that's another kind of key point where liberal would say that that's really interesting that and that's also helpful because i think that you know i instantly and i'm sure many of the listeners as well instantly there's a lot of red flags popping up here right because (laughs) i think what we've described a liberal to be 
you know, doesn't really hold up to what we see. And I think what you just said is a really good way into this. So this idea that like liberal values are universal. So everybody, you know, in a, in a liberal worldview, everybody experiences freedom, everybody experiences or should experience democracy, freedom of speech, et cetera, et cetera. And so I guess like, you know, just being who I am in the world, <laughs> a Muslim woman of color, family who've come from, uh, you know, previously colonized place to the UK and the top, you know, knowing the other topics that we've discussed on this podcast so far, I think it's already quite clear that universal principles of freedom, democracy are not equally applied in the so-called liberal West. So I'm starting to sense that there's something going on behind the scenes. So what for you is the sort of central issue that that begins to blur the boundary between liberals and fascists? Like, where, or what's a good starting point or, or a vantage point to kind of see where these two things are not so clearly um, separable? It's really interesting because I was just thinking, like, because you just said that, oh, as a Muslim woman, you, uh, you know, you know that this, this is not to be the case. But I think the liberal kind of answer would be like, hang on, look, 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 wait, wait up. You've got like access. You've had access to all these things. You've had access to education. You've had an equal opportunity. You can apply for whatever job. There's nothing, no structures in place that should keep you out of any institution out of wealth you know it's a free market you can go and start a business and do whatever you like so i mean there's so much freedom for you to go and take that that shows that you know that's the liberal dream that's really (laughs) interesting because you're right and and i remember just as anecdotal but i think this kind of brings together these two narratives which is that uh, a couple of years ago, uh, there was anti-Trump protest in London and I was asked to perform a poem. So I went, performed a poem and it was all a bit weird anyway. But afterwards, um, this guy came up to me and he was like, oh, hey, could I just um, ask you a couple of questions and had a camera and everything? And I was like, well, hang on, what's this for? Like, what is this? And he just mentioned some YouTube channel. I'd never heard of it. Um, and then he said, look, you just said in your poem that, you know, Britain is racist, it's sexist, it's colonial, it's um, capitalist, you know, it's just awful. And he just said, so why do you stay and so I just walked away, right? Because I was like, okay, cool. Yeah, this yeah, is a conversation yeah. I need course, to have. But when I looked up who this guy was, what this YouTube channel was, you know, he is the alt-right. He's like very much mm-hmm. big guy mm-hmm. in the alt-right. And, but what was interesting is that, you know, if we just take apart this moment here, it's like you, he, he's angry that I've experienced the liberal West, right? And then I'm daring to call it things like racist, things like colonial. And he's saying, if... By asking me, you know, why don't you go back? What he's really saying is, in a sense, I suppose, trying to expose to me that actually you won't go back because your barbaric culture, your backwards culture, you know, doesn't give you these freedoms that we give you. And so I think already we're entering this cauldron of like, there's a lot of people saying a lot of things. Because it's also that classic of like, you wouldn't even be able to say that. If you that is back so home, classic. You know, that home. is so classic. Yes, absolutely. So you should celebrate and be grateful for what you do have here. Which is interesting because I think what we're talking about now is like a third space as well. So we've got like, well, this is how I'm seeing it in my head. We've got liberals, fascists, and then it's kind of like racialized people, right? Because it's kind of like you don't fit into the liberal West, not because you're a fascist, but because you're a person of colour. So you're barbaric, you're uncivilized, all these tropes that were built throughout history and which were built during the Enlightenment period, right? So the same period of time where you're creating these universal principles of freedom, 
you're also saying, but these people are inherently people whose land we should own in the name of freeing it. You know, we can enslave these people in the name of the free market, in the name of, you know, producing goods for us to trade across the world, to open up and liberalize things. So yeah, there's, <laughs> there's lots of that kind of like cracks in this um, facade of liberalism that are becoming very clear. Kind of maybe jumping to today and like more, you know, what we're seeing around us right now. Mm-hmm. I think this year probably presents, you know, <laughs> a oh. multitude of examples that you could give. Yeah, um, of But yeah, what for you has been a moment or, or something that you think you can kind of say, look, here is a great example of where liberal and fascist has just not proved to be oppositional in any real sense. I think the uh, topic on all of our minds this year has been the global pandemic. And uh, I was in Sweden, you know, for at the very beginning uh, in spring, and it kind of just became very clear that we had a country that is very proudly, historically social democratic in a liberal democratic framework, in a, in a in liberal framework, that all of a sudden was kind of actively pursuing a policy that I think could only be described as a policy of eugenics. Go on, um, tell me more. That's quite a big statement, really, yeah. Yeah, no, that sounds uh, really dramatic. But to go to the heart of it, um, towards the beginning of the pandemic, Sweden actively chose to um, pursue a strategy of... Uh, allowing the coronavirus to spread across the population. Mm. Um, so herd immunity state- like we had here at the beginning. Yeah, they, they, they always denied that it was herd immunity, but you know we can deduce that the uh, approach was a herd immunity approach. And whereas some countries like the UK, obviously, you know, after huge criticism kind of turned its back on that policy, mm. Sweden chose to continue. And what that actually meant is that... Um, there was no mass testing, there was no attempt at contact tracing. And at the same time, there wasn't any far reaching lockdown either. So you had none of those things. So of course, there were some things like, you know, stay at home to work if you can. But on the whole, you know, bars open, restaurants open, everything is open. But if you're vulnerable, uh, stay at home. That was the kind of, if you think of the time that you're, that, that was kind of, that was happening, that was at the same time as like pretty much every other country around Sweden was shutting down, you know, everywhere from Norway, Denmark to the rest of Europe, um, realize that, you know, there's a big threat. We've just seen the threats from Italy, from China. We've seen what's happened there. So we really want to protect everyone. Why, why I'm putting this in this context is because Towards the beginning, there was there were a lot of narratives circulating around why Sweden was doing this. People were very, very protective of the policy. And one of the kind of main themes that emerged was that there was a need to stay open. And, you know, this is, a, this is a democratic country. We can't shut everything down. We can't have police on the streets. We can't have fines for people who don't go out. You know, the, the freest thing to do, the way, you know, you know we're following the science because this is what the experts are saying, but also it's a way of like maintaining this image of Sweden as a very free place. So in the name of liberty, we won't close In the name down. of liberty, right? So in the name of all of these, you know, liberal... Um, ideals that I've just kind of we've just talked about uh society stayed open but you know on the from the very outset we have you know just this glaring fact that okay it's open for everyone apart from anyone who's considered vulnerable and that's that's a huge chunk of the population that's anyone who's old anyone who is immunocompromised um and a lot of other people who just didn't know that they were vulnerable because a lot of people don't know that you're vulnerable so from the outset, you've got a policy there. You've decided to have a policy that rather than everyone, you know, staying in uh, for a short, a shorter period of time, 
you have a small group of people staying in for a really long, yeah, a, a long period of time. Unforeseeable so time. So yeah, it's comp- it's a completely ableist kind of uh, kind of policy. And what we then kind of figured out, because obviously we didn't have as much info about what was going on at the beginning, was that the groups that are being affected were not only disabled people, elderly people, but also there's a massive representation of people of colour. So you know, it's yeah. So you you've got all of that, but then also you know. Months later, what we realize is that the death toll in Sweden is five times higher than the neighbor Denmark and 10 times higher than neighbors Norway and Finland. So ultimately, you've got a policy here that has, I mean, and it's just so controversial to even like say this. You can't even say that we're, we're, we're sacrificing people in the name of a free society and a free economy. That Because that's just such a provocative thing to say. But ultimately, there is a sense that some people can just stay at home for unlimited amounts of time. And also, their li- like how much do their lives actually matter? You saying it like that after you've explained it doesn't really sound that controversial, to be honest, because, I mean, what else could you phrase that as? Like, you've just said that in the name of freedom, some people's lives will have to be lost, you know? And it's like, and I think that, I think we've seen echoes of that also in the kind of way that like wartime rhetoric has been used, where it's like, you know, sacrifices will be made. Um, and, and, you know, in the UK, we've had this thing of like, well, in the name of the economy, some people will have to die. And I think that's so interesting because it goes back to what you were saying about like the free market as a, as a, as a, a really important part of liberalism. So it's like almost the market has more value than the lives of, you know, what you've just said, disabled people, people of colour, anyone immunocompromised. And that to me does sound like that's a genocidal policy, essentially. For a certain part of the population, you're willing to say you will die but that's in the name of freedom. It's all to just, it's all to, you know, uphold this image. And because it's, you know, liberalism is not about collectivism, right? It's not about, you know, people acting together. So, you know, there is a way of avoiding uh, death, and that is to just take extreme individual responsibility and just stay at home. And that, you know what I mean? That that has all been kind of privatized. That responsibility is no longer something for the whole society. And, you know, you could make, you know, I, 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 don't, I wouldn't agree with it, but you could make an argument that in a country which is has like, you know, widespread poverty, widespread inequality, this kind of thing is, is, is the only option. You know, I, I'm, I'm not saying that is the only option, but you could make that argument. But Sweden is literally like one of the richest countries in Europe, one of the most equal countries, one... You mean in terms of like resource distribution? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it just doesn't... It, like, it just didn't make sense for Sweden to take this herd immunity approach. It's, yeah, it seems and completely unnecessary. When analysed from this angle, you could say, look, this is a eugenic, this is a policy of eugenics, but it, that's the kind of word you'd only really associate with fascism, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's not, like... Definitely, and I'm sure you would be shut down for saying that, right? Because it's like, how yeah. can you, you, you call them that? But what your example actually brings to mind for me is like another kind of unnamed policy of... I suppose, like, white supremacy or um, fascistic thing that's not named for itself. And so I was recently reading um, uh, Nadine El-Anani's book, Bordering Britain, and she basically says that in 1981, immigration legislation is passed. That means that if you have a parent who was born in the UK, it's much easier for you to access citizenship rights. Now, what she says is that at that time in 1981, for you to have had a parent who was born in the UK, you were sort of 90% plus, you know, 95% maybe likely to be white. So what this did, she said, is essentially mean that 
you be, the, the government, the state begins to define Britishness as whiteness. So if you, for you to be a British citizen, you also we also want you to be white. We want what counts as someone who's British to be someone who is white. But what she says, and I think it's really interesting and echoes what you're saying, is she says, nobody said that this is a policy to um, protect the white race or, you know, this isn't a policy of um, white uh, racial purity of Britain to maintain the superiority of the white race. Because that, then you would be like, oh my gosh, that's obviously a fascist discourse. That's obviously a nationalist, you know, right-wing thing. Instead, it was just like, yeah, no, this is just obviously what we have to do. Border checks, controls, it's all very normal. It's all very natural. And I think zooming forward to now, then the same, you know, the exa- in that same realm of immigration legislation, it's this interesting thing where, in the name again, in the name of liberty, uh, to protect our freedoms, to protect our democracy, we have to use very illiberal measures such as deportation, such as detention at the border, holding you know thousands of people who are seeking asylum in essentially prisons, but, but you know actually a type of like internment where you don't have any sense of when you might be able to uh, leave. And I think there's something really interesting there where it's like. We just turn a blind eye to this because we don't seem to mind the idea that we're using authoritarian tools. We're using the opposite of, you know, what you just said, freedom of speech, freedom uh, freedom of law, uh, sorry, rule of law, justice, these kinds of concepts. We're actually saying to protect them, we have to uh, kind of do the opposite of them to people Mm -hmm. who don't look like us. So for me, there's a real connection as well between like liberalism using illiberal measures to protect White supremacy. That's the way I would put it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think there's actually two interesting things going on here. Because first of all, like I think the the key point that we're coming to is the fact that liberalism just makes all of these immense oppressions invisible, right? They all are con- allowed to continue happening. It's just mm. they're never named, mm. yes. you know, as, as what they are. But they, but they can still continue. Dress them up and, differently. And uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think the second thing that uh, we see is that there is a specific group of people that are protected no matter what. Mm. And that is people who are more white, people who are more able-bodied, people who are cis and, you know, straight and who are men. And, you know, no matter what it is, it seems these people are always protected, yeah. um, regardless of how we're dressing it up, yeah. liberal or fascist. This to me, uh, yeah, I agree. This gets to the heart of things because I guess the the very clear reason for this, in my mind anyway, is that liberalism, fascism, at the same time as this whole debate is going on in Europe about who's a liberal, who's a fascist, all European states, regardless of whether they're liberal or fascist, are colonizers. So yeah. what does it mean, right? If if you could be liberal or fascist, but still be colonizing, still be extracting resources, still be profiting off the labor, the dehumanization, the murder, the massacre of people of color in colonized places. To me, that kind of says, okay, one strong, strong link between fascism and liberalism seems to be white supremacy. Like it seems pretty unavoidable that if you're a person of color under either regime, you're still going to end up in a concentration camp. That might be called a detention center. It might be called a prison. And under fascism, it might be more overtly called a concentration camp. But actually, is there such a big difference? I mean, you know, the UK doesn't have a national independent living scheme that is universal for everyone who needs it. So anyone who's disabled and needs like personal care, personal assistance, it's not available to everyone 
without any limits. It's very restricted. It's, you know, it's very bordered by kind of disability testing. And the idea that, okay, maybe not so much anymore, but until a couple of decades ago, where people were literally kept in institutions, you know, their whole lives, and that would be seen as the idea that that can all continue. I mean, for that person in institution, what what is the difference between living under a liberal regime or a fascist regime where your freedom is completely constricted just because you're born or because you are disabled. So suddenly, you know, these freedoms of liberalism were never, it turns out, extended to everybody, even within the liberal society itself. And I think the example I always remember when it comes to this is that, um, I think it's Nisha Kapoor, actually, who I actually interviewed in uh, season one, but she made a really good point in her book that, at the same time that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is being drawn up in Europe, um, she says, you know, genocide was ongoing in the colonies. And I think just to speak to what you're saying there, to me, what what that's about is because some people weren't seen as human at the same time that human rights were being conceptualized. So what does it mean then that, as you're saying, disabled people are not seen as humans who are deserving of those liberal values people of color are not seen as humans within that context of human rights it kind of means to me that there's always going to be the possibility that those liberal values never have to extend beyond the parameter you want them to yeah and there's no golden age we can look back to either because you know (laughs) this all kind of we can look at an origin point being um the french and american revolutions we can even go as far back as that we can go to the enlightenment yeah and we can see that at the same time as all of these fantastic bills of rights were being drawn up you know that was a time of massive slavery and massive colonialism where so you know the, the the universal rights of man were you know from the very outset when they were written down just absolutely not applicable to all people because some people just weren't human enough. Exactly. And I actually think a really exciting example of of that in that moment is the Haitian Revolution, right? So the Haitian Revolution happens immediately after the French Revolution in this kind of context that Haiti is a French colony. So it's like, hang on. And this is one of the, the, the biggest enslaved population are on this island. And they're like, okay, hang on, you're talking about freedom of man, you're talking about liberty, egality, fraternity. Mm, mm. Sounds great. Sounds like something that would be very applicable to the situation of somebody who's been enslaved by this nation. Yeah, yeah. They declare revolution, they declare their republic, their independence. And immediately it's like, whoa, 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 we said French Revolution, but not for you guys. And so I think that shows, you know, from in that very first moment, this is, you know, 1801, I think, or late 1700s, that the this notion of egality, freedom, all of these these things that are kind of seen as like the European Western freedoms that you all should be craving, that you all should be working towards, that you're progressing towards. Well, actually, when black enslaved people were claiming that at that same moment, they were told, no, 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 this isn't for you. And today, how do we talk about Haiti? Oh, well, hopefully it will progress out of its underdevelopedness. You know, hopefully it will come to be as modern and free as us. Well, hang on, who stopped it being so? I think there's a real contradiction at the heart of that. Even if we fast forward to British colonialism in India, where we know that there is a specific brand of British liberalism, which is basically, you know, the, the same kinds of values we're talking about. It was just so evident who got you know, to access these rights and not. Because obviously the British colonial project was one of extreme plunder and, you know, rule of people of colour across the world. At the same time, so let's take one of these values, self-representation and government. That's obviously like a, a crucial liberal yeah. uh, value. Like even under, you know, during the, I think it's the 1800s we're talking about now, um, 
the the British territories that were allowed access to this particular right. There was America, Australia, Canada, and then you had you, you had India that was just not considered as being you know sufficiently developed in not terms of enough. human nature. Yeah, <laughs> it's basically just saying well you're not human enough, so right. you're not going to get a vote, you're not going to get representation in Parliament, you're not going to get your, none of that. So it's just very clear that. The liberal project has always been for people considered human, and there's always been this hierarchy of who is human and who is not. I think that is the the crux of it, isn't it? It's like what I think to just bring it back round to you know the what you were saying right at the beginning about what somebody would say to me. Look, well, it's only due to freedom of speech that you can say that. It's only due to freedom of expression that you can criticize the West so loudly. I think the reason that that is so disingenuous is, as you've just said, that actually I'm not seen as human. So we can pretend that there's this equal rights in this like kind of neutral space where, you know, I can call you a racist, you can call me a packy, and that's all the same. There's no difference, right? It's like, well, actually, there's a really big difference because one of those people is not seen as human and one is. And I think, the you know, just to give you material consequences of that, that means that some of us can be, I mean, Ruth Wilson Gilmore says it best, right? That, that under conditions that we live in, racism means premature death, essentially. And I think this this feels really linked to, you know, if racism is about dehumanization and dehumanization is underpinned by liberal values and liberalism, then under liberalism, there will be premature death for people, whether that's through prison, whether that's through deportation, whether that's through, as you've said, all, you know, kind of benefits that will al- allow for you to actually live your life. Um, support measures that will allow for you to actually be able to survive and, and not even just survive, like b- be able to access kind of what we deem to be important parts of having dignity as a human being. Um, and, and I mean, within that example, anyway, there's all the like contradictions of the fact that, well, actually, we'll, how can you talk about freedom of speech when like we know that people of colour are surveilled? We know Muslims are surveilled. We know that like you can't speak freely without being criminalised. And I just wanted to mention one more thing, sorry, but while I'm in this little uh, thought bubble, which is that I remember this scholar, um, Santiago Slobodsky, he talked about the way that, so what he was talking about was genocidal conditions. This is, you know, his sort of framework. So he's talking about genocidal conditions and particularly thinking about the Holocaust um, that happens in Europe in the 1940s and how the conditions that led up to this, he says, are conditions of liberalism. They're not conditions of fascism. So he sort of says fascism is only the sort of more explicit face of what liberals are doing anyway. And so he traces that to, to understand the Nazi Holocaust, you need to look at the 1920s. You need to look at the 1930s. You need to look pre. And I think, you know, he says the same thing is true with any genocidal conditions. And so he talks about today and he says, forget Donald Trump. You have Obama, you have Bush, you have... And he talks about all this sort of, you know, pre what we now are kind of, you know, I think more people are happy to say, oh, well, uh, Donald Trump, he's a fascist, he's a racist. But it's like to actually create the conditions for fascism, it's liberalism that does that. And it's liberals and it's these values where, as you said earlier, just not giving a name to those things. So yeah, we're still going to be doing drone drones hacks. We're still going to be, you know, incarcerating people indefinitely in Guantanamo Bay. We're still going to be going to war uh, in imperialist kind of extraction ventures across the Middle East. So that to me just feels like an important kind of way of thinking about it, particularly because you talked about eugenics at the beginning, like genocidal conditions as a kind of part of liberalism. I think the Labour Party is a really good example because like now it just feels like the whole Labour Party is like, we love the EU, we can't believe Brexit happened. 
And you just go back a few years and you had like Yvette Cooper out there being like, you know what, we do have to actually restrict benefits from European migrants. Like, you know, they can't get child benefit. They can't get... And it's just like, you know, you spent years like laying the groundwork for what happened. Mm. You know, I'm not passing judgment on whether the EU is a good thing or a bad thing, whatever. But what I am saying is that you literally made it happen. And now you're like, yeah. And, and that kind of feeds into the the way that like, you know, the natural conclusion of a lot of kind of you know, fascist, horrible things are just constantly being laid through through liberalism, Definitely. right? Well, it's, I think, I think, I think just to like build on your same example, you know, the Nigel Farage's um, breaking point poster that came out in 2016, where it's like this queue of, you know, brownish men coming into the UK and it's like, there's too much, we need to take back control. Everyone acted like, this is disgusting, this is race, you do are vile, you have nothing to do with us, the, you know, the political mainstream parties, I mean. And at the same time, since like at least 2011, if not prior to that, they have been saying the exact same thing. They've been saying, oh, well, you know, you never know. It could um, be a security risk to let in the, all these migrants. You know, you can't always be sure that they are just migrants. You know, this could be ISIS working under the sea. You know, this was people like Michael Gove, David Cameron, Ian Duncan Smith. It wasn't just your Farages and your Tommy Robinson and your Katie Hopkins. So I think as well that what you said there is important. It's Neither is it just like Katie Hopkins is completely distinct from David Cameron and David Cameron's completely distinct from, you know, um, Gordon Brown. It's like, actually, there's a real continuum that you can see across this spectrum. And so for me, that's also where it's like when, we, when we've kind of revealed this about liberalism, you know, it's also important to question whether the difference between like partisan politics is even that distinct too when those same values are being kind of used by both parties to say this is what the west is this is what britain is and this is what britain is not in a way that is always yeah, racialized absolutely but my question then usually at this point is okay so why does this binary exist like who benefits from there being this idea of a liberal and a fascist who's the opposite it's an easy way for people who are white, rich, able-bodied, cis, straight men to continue enacting power without it looking like an awful thing. Because, you know, mm. you don't have the labels of the, the fascist labels anywhere. Everything's happening in a, in a very kind of invisible way. Um, but it, it continues. And I think um, one point that kind of makes this very clear is an argument that... Um, is made by a guy called Kostas Duzinas, who is uh, a Greek uh, academic. And he basically says that, um, look, neoliberalism, which is this kind of extreme form of market liberalism, where the market is kind of above everything and privatization and all of this kind of stuff. The mainstreaming, universalization of neoliberalism coincided with the universalization of human rights. So human rights and neoliberalism become kind of global standards or like are, you know, proposed as global standards at the same time. And it's no secret to us the extreme indignities, terror of global capitalism. We know that so many people suffer because of the way our economy is kind of it, it works, because of the way wealth is transferred from ex colonies to the ex metropole, the way that it's all set up. And if that can coexist with a code of human rights that is supposed to be for everyone, it's supposed to be global, you know, how is that even possible? You know, how, like, so, so in a sense, he argues that human rights is the vocabulary of the neoliberal system. It, it, it is the system that allows all of that to kind of stay in place at the same time as you having extreme moral authority. 
Wow. Wow. That makes a lot of sense. And I think it's almost like the structural version of, you know, that individual person who can feel good about it. It's like, there's actually a moral authority on an institutional level. And when you were speaking, I was thinking about actually, you know, um, the World Bank and the IMF and these organizations who that enact all these policies of extraction on the global South, uh, leave them in huge debt and kind of force them to do these things in the name, again, of this, you just said, of human rights, where it's like your economy must be ruined um, and, you know, devastated for the benefit of the global North in order for you to really get nearer to human rights. And I think that, that kind of, I don't know, I mean, there's probably, you know, maybe that's someone I need to talk about to break down a binary there, but I think there's something there that's really... Um, interesting and it reminds me of something that you've said before to me which this really blew my mind when you said it which was that a really interesting part of like liberal freedoms is you know it's all about freedom of speech freedom of um, expression but never the freedom to uh, you know have a universal basic income the freedom to have food on your table and I think that's that material difference is so interesting yeah because that's what it obscures right but the fact that neoliberalism can exist at the same time as human rights just means that human rights has nothing to say about socioeconomic equality It's, it's it's kind of like you know your ultimate freedoms are rule of law freedom of speech democracy but never the right to have food on your table. Like that's never been the priority of human rights. And that's another reason why it's another reason why we can't see it as a project for universal freedom. Because if that conception of freedom doesn't include actual material well being, what's the and point? Who's it for? Yeah. Yeah. And who is it for? Because yeah. that I think that cuts to the chase where it's like this is upholding a real supremacy because you know, not only is it clearly invested in colonialism and white whiteness, but it's also this, I think what you've mentioned about capitalism now that's so important because that to me explains why it's so hidden. I mean, I think Noam Chomsky writes about this, right? Like how do you manufacture consent for such a terrorizing uh, regime of economic organization? And it's only because you kind of suggest to people, hey, this is lovely, this is all, everyone's free. And I think this is where you get a lot of people internalizing that idea as well of, you know, if you just work hard enough, you can get whatever you want. You can work your way to the top. And I think that is so insidious. It's something that, you know, a lot of people of color, a lot of poor people take on because we believe that the reason that we are poor is not because of, you know, material illiberalism of the UK in the sense of like, we're going to cut we're going to through austerity we're going to cut all welfare we're going to slash and privatize anything that may kind of contribute to your your nurturing and your dignity and instead you just work for it bro like you just do your best and you can you can get it well i mean i think one um example just the other week i was watching tv that just made this so kind of blatantly obvious to me was um so like i don't know if you've been following the whole like um Boris Johnson has kind of um, he's going back on his agreement with the EU and uh, is apparently prepared to break international law because they've signed a big treaty a Brexit treaty and now he's apparently going to go back on that and uh, that breaks international law and you know the the head of the the EU commission is really really angry about this and she's kind of made statements saying that you know we're going to take legal action against Britain and it's just taking up so much kind of it's like you know what yeah yeah they've broken international law the EU wants to take uh, Britain to court fair enough at the same time as in all of these countries, tens of thousands of people have died avoidable deaths from a pandemic. And there's literally no one's taking any legal action at all. 
thousands of people in this country have died because of benefits being t- uh, removed. Hundreds of thousands. Or stories yeah. have killed hundreds of thousands of people. Right. So, and there's no no legal action being taken there. Even though the like number one um, right on every single Bill of Rights is always just like everyone like has a right to life. So it's just mm-hmm. like, we can see that the whole kind of legal framework, the economic framework does even um, and here we see that the, the liberal kind of premise even falls on its own premises yeah. right yeah and that's brilliant because i think what you just said there is like yet again another you know false facade of this whole thing which is that the, i think one of the big ideas in like all of this liberal framework is that at the end of the day, like everyone can get their rights because even if you don't get them the first time round, like you can kind of appeal through the justice system, right? So your right to property is taken from you. Well, you just go through the justice system and what you do is send somebody else to prison. And so I think that also just that whole premise, that whole kind of setup of like, I had a right to property, but you don't have a right as somebody who's sort of, you know, either, I don't know, taken my car or robbed my house. You don't now have a right. You forfeited your right to live basically in society as a member of society and I remember growing up like that was a really normal you know kind of uh common sense kind of thinking where it's like if you don't fulfill your responsibilities as a citizen which is how it was often framed then you don't deserve your rights as a citizen and I think that's really interesting to within this universal idea of liberalism you also then have this thing of like rights and responsibilities because it automatically creates deserving and undeserving um, human beings under this banner of like um, access to freedom. So not only do we have like this first rupture of like humans who are free versus those who are not human at all, you also have within humans who are free, like the deserving humans and the non-deserving yeah, humans. Yeah. So you can actually still have a liberal um, regime under which, you know, huge swathes of the population are in prison, unable to access yeah. any of those freedoms, um, because that's just part of how we uphold freedom is is to make some people unfree. And I think that kind of really blatant um, kind of contradiction just just throws up. I think what you were saying there about the legal system as well, because it's like, well, who does that liberal legal system benefit? It's about upholding some kind of justice, but it's a justice that's already premised on this idea that like freedom isn't for everybody and 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 then like what you lose is freedom actually that's like the thing we can take away from you and punish you with but it's the, it's the fact that we you know there's no consideration taken to structural conditions that cause inequality and structural violence the fact that we I mean we're saying this but from a liberal premise you I mean that that doesn't even make sense because it's not you know structural violence doesn't count as violence right under a, lib- under a liberal paradigm, then it is an individual causes harm to another individual. There's only hate that crimes. Is, that yeah. is violence. Hate yeah. crimes is the only yeah. violence. Yeah. yeah. Whereas, like, mass impoverishment, mass um, detention, um, you know, can, these just don't count as violences. They don't count as murder. Yeah. They don't count as, yeah. Yeah, it's like, it reminds me of every time you see, like, uh, every few years, there's a story of, like, a child refugee who's found dead, washed up on Britain's shores. And the Home Secretary, the Home Office, the Prime Minister, they all say, this is so sad, this tragedy is just so devastating. Absolutely, like, as you say, avoiding the fact that there are structural reasons this person died, because you made safe and cheap crossings illegal you made it so that they had to go through the most dangerous possible circumstances to get here and they died and then you're acting like oh 
if they'd only made it, you know, we would have given them the freedom of life. No, you wouldn't. You would have probably detained them, hope to kind of through psychological warfare, make them break their will and go back to the place they were fleeing from in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I think that's also what makes it, it's part of what makes it easy to uphold that binary. Because if we only define violence and, uh, and, and murder as something an individual does to another individual, it's like, well, of course, liberals aren't fascists. You know what I mean? Yeah, it, yeah it just 100%. Makes- and I think this is, you know, I've always got to bring up, I guess, every, every episode. But I think this, for me, it all comes back to the counterterrorism discourse as well, right? Where it's like, terrorists are these random individuals who just do acts of violence. So to counter them, we're just going to have to like, you know, keep watching out for random individuals, see them, stop them, um, you know, stop them at the border, keep checking their stuff. But if there was another understanding, which was that, huh, when there's a structurally violent world where people are impoverished, where people are terrorized, where people are uh, racially profiled, where people are made to not be human, is it likely that there might be interpersonal or individual acts of violence? I think, yeah, highly likely. But when you've exceptionalized, as you've said, violence that people perpetrate and you call even a special name like terrorism, you then hide the fact that every day the state is violent. And, you know, I think Noam Chomsky, again, don't know why I'm mentioning him twice, but, you know, he talks about how before 9-11, um, every South American country had its own 9-11 caused by the United States. And it had yeah, millions of yeah, them, you know, yeah, forget one, yeah, it had yeah. 9-11 every single day. Think about, you know, since 9-11, Iraq, Afghanistan, you know, there's like an, a million other conflicts, you know, where it's like, these are not conflicts, they're just one regime, you know, trying to kill people of, of another. And, and we don't, ever that's just sort of like collateral or you know what's needed to maintain even actually in the name of freedom isn't it operation enduring freedom that was the name of the invasion of Afghanistan (laughs) and it is so wild how like you'll get countries that are like doing that kind of introduce measures to ensure freedom by restricting freedom like I just think it's just a bit well I'm just thinking of like Denmark another one of my favorite countries to talk about I'm talking about the uh, ghetto scheme, the ghetto package in Denmark. Oh, God, tell us about that. Sounds good. It's it's been in place for 10 years, um, and it's kind of a big desegregation program in Denmark. It's a a way of integrating people. That's how it's kind of touted. And um, basically, the, the basis of this is identifying certain areas in Denmark as ghettos. In order to be a ghetto, you have to be over 1,000 people, your area, and you need to be at least 50% non-Western background. There you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, on top of that, you need to fulfill a few other kind of criteria too. So something about unemployment rates, rates of criminality, um, educational achievement. So be poor people of colour, uh, yeah, living together in close quarters. Yeah, exactly. And um, so in order to kind of de-ghettoise Denmark, which is the idea, they have like a whole a range of kind of different things they're doing. So for example, what one which I'd say is wild is um, parents who live in areas designated ghettos have to send their children to preschool from the age of one under the pretext that that's the way they'll learn Danish values. Oh, wow. From the so, age of one. Yeah. So, so like, you know, in order to make sure these children understand what true freedom is, we're forcing their parents and no other parents, we're forcing parents of colour to send their children to preschool and not anyone else. And that, that, the whole, like, the irony of that is just like, 
And on top of that, you've had things like in certain areas under for, for limited periods of time, um, certain crimes have been doubly punished. You know, so your sentence will just be doubled if you're just because you, of where you're committing the crime. Yeah, if you've committed a crime in that area, and that that's just like a coded way of being that. If you're a person of color, you do have, you know, a double penalty that like you've got a double you know, and for all talk of like you know sharia um justice systems taking over in europe they've literally just introduced a dual legal system wow. themselves yeah, that's for people really, of color actually just yeah well, because one thing that's interesting there is that like with the with the uh, like education classes for one-year-olds it's like you kind of admitting that actually liberal values are not so pervasive that it's just enough to grow up within Denmark and you'll know them because it's almost admitting that if you're a person of color, you're not going to even experience these rights that we tell you you should know. So then we're going to have to teach you what we purport to be like a propaganda exercise, essentially. And the second thing that I found interesting there is that um, what you're just saying about the, the legal system, because I think something that quite a few scholars in the UK have been saying for a while about the UK is that there is two justice systems, so like the criminal justice system that we kind of see and hear about. And then there's what they call like the parallel justice system, which is very secretive, operates through secret courts and secret proceedings. And it very much only applies to racialized populations. And through that justice system, you're much more precarious because punitive measures include your citizenship being stripped, being revoked, being deported, all these kinds of measures. So I think you're, you're right. There's such an interesting kind of thing about like, oh my God, we've got to protect our justice system. We've got to protect our freedoms. At the same time, we're not even applying those freedoms to everybody. We have a whole separate justice system for those people. Yeah. And, and most talk of kind of parallel systems has always been, you know, these communities that don't, you know, that don't integrate. They have their when in fact it's the state that's actually implementing a, a power, like a double system. And, you know, I think the pinnacle of the Danish ghetto scheme is the idea that the kind of, the characteristics of these ghettos need to change. So basically right? after four years, if you're still on this ghetto list, if you still fulfill those criteria that I outlined, uh, then you get designated a hard ghetto. Now, if you become a hard ghetto, you need to reduce the amount of public housing in your area to 40%. And the only way of doing that is literally forcibly evicting people from their homes and privatizing them and selling them to be so that you replace people of poor people of color with um, richer, whiter people who just come in. And, and it's just like all so of this. You're really getting rid of the conditions that create these so-called ghettos. You're just removing the people. So ultimately, all of these things, like a double legal system, a double educational system, random dispersal without treating structural conditions, this is all happening in a country that's also like famed for its extreme liberalism, its civil liberties, its freedom, and it's the happiest country in the world. They introduced gay marriage there before everyone else did. And this is just what strikes me as so wild that this binary of liberalism and fascism literally just has to go in the bin. That reminds me also of something that uh, I remember we talked about this a while back where uh, there was that video. It was like a, I'm sure, I mean, it was more than a video, but I remember seeing a video that was about in Sweden, um, you know, just because you were talking about teaching Danish values, right? It was like teaching refugees, um, yeah. like about how to be Western, you know, like how to not be sexist. And I think what was really interesting was the like um, lack of misogyny was posited as this like Western value. Um, when obviously we, you know, every woman in like across America, the UK, Western Europe talks all the time about rape culture, about misogyny, about, you know, lack of consent and, and all the kinds of different um 
gender-based violence and, and sexism that we see. And yet when it comes to suddenly refugees and people of color, it's like, oh, we can teach you how to be less sexist. And it, and it's and it's but it's within what you're saying, that like forced um kind of coercion of like learning our values. And if you don't, and this goes back to Santiago Slabodsky's argument about genocidal conditions. The, the, the liberal will never tell you there's a kind of there's a condition attached to this, right? So it's like learn our values, but then the thing that isn't said out loud is, and if you don't, you know, we'll deport you, or you know, if you don't, we'll put you in prison, or if you don't, we'll make your life unlivable. Yeah, I mean, that also goes to the whole idea of the way kind of integration is always just seen as like an exchange of values rather than a need to ensure equality, like economic, socioeconomic equality, because that's never going to be part of the liberal vision, right? No, no, I think that's that's bang on. And it's worth just maybe stopping that for a second, because I think integration is seen as one of these like parts of how you make a liberal democracy work, is that everybody has to concede to its values and that is called integration. But, you know, so, and this is obviously in the UK, always the kind of... Um, offense that like Muslims and people of color do, but I think particularly Muslims, it's like they live parallel lives, they don't integrate, they they kind of have, you know, these no-go zones, all of this stuff. Um, but as you say, no one's talking about like the economic and structural conditions that mean that people of color live generally together because of intergenerational poverty and white flight. So white people leave those areas, they leave the worst housing and poor people who are generally the new migrants in area move into them. And because of racism, a lot of people kind of want to live together. Of course you do that. You're not going to want to go live out in a white suburb. I wouldn't want to go live out in a white suburb. I wouldn't feel safe to do that. But the point being, when you dress it up as like they're the enemies of freedom because they're trying to stay safe or because of structural inequality, then yeah, there's a whole, there's, there's yeah, I think we, we've picked like a million uh, kind of holes actually in liberalism today. And maybe one thing to just, you know, even, even this out a bit is to just say that fascists, I think, often show within Europe many liberal tendencies, right? And as we said at the beginning, you know, fascists are very invested in freedom of speech. They're always talking about like, you know, free expression and um, all, all these different types of liberal freedoms, which I think just proves again how illiberal those freedoms are. Yeah, I think one like trend that you, you can see all across Europe, because you know, we often try to make this kind of differentiation between social democrats and liberal democrats versus fascists, when so much of European kind of public policy has been anti-immigration but like redistribution within the country like you know like, mm. a, like a social like a, like a nationalist social democracy like, social democracy within our borders yeah exactly and, yeah and and at the same time as having a kind of extremely nationalist and extremely ra- racist policies and i don't know like the polish government that just won a few weeks ago that was their whole selling point right it was like contenders in the polish election were the law and justice party which won versus the party that's much more liberal and queer friendly and and the the fact that this party that won was a conservative government that I think people would maybe say is kind of like has far right tendencies, fascist tendencies, actually was redistributing, which is why it had oh, such a which, which which is why it had such a uh, broad appeal among people. Redistributing among people in the country, so benefiting people at the same time as being extremely queerphobic, which is one of the focal points of this election, and of course anti migrant racist, which is a classic. So you, it does complicate that binary of who is the liberal and who is the fascist because it just feels like... And actually, I just wanted to pick up on the um, 
Just what you said there, because I think there's a really interesting point as well about how increasingly um, there's this idea that like liberal or liberalism and like um, queer rights go hand in hand. And this is just, you know, very much part of liberalism is queer rights. And I think something that's always important to just think about is like how the state so conveniently use that when they want to. And I think just a classic example is, you know, the UK's border and detention and the, the way that many, many asylum seekers to the UK are LGBTQ and they're usually seeking asylum because it's not safe for them to to basically li- live any kind of like safe life um, wherever they're coming from. And what the UK border force do is, you know, essentially humiliate people in a really like homophobic way and kind of, you know, prove that you need asylum, prove that you're queer, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, you can imagine the kinds of things that they ask. And I think one of the really interesting things is that then they deport people back to these places. Now, this means that those people's human rights will be violated, right? There's a kind of, there's a consent here that like, yeah, we're going to deport you, even though we know this thing about you and we know that you're going to experience a violation of your human rights and your safety. You could even potentially be killed if you're deported. Um, but we're going to do it anyway. And at the same time, we are the queer friendly West. We are liberal. We love queer rights. We're going to have pride. And I think that's just a really interesting example of the way that like liberalism can also co-opt many things into it while still, you know, creating genocidal conditions for those same people. So I think, you know, side by side with that example is, you know, representation of people of color, representation of people of color and BAME. And we, you know, we're all about representation. And I think it goes back to what you said about individualism and not kind of a collectivism, because it's like, we can, we like to have the people that we marginalize as individuals and we want to kind of showcase them. We don't actually want to extend any kind of, um, yeah, real genuine structural justice to anybody. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. And it kind of is, is reflected in the, you know, the extreme focus on um, honor-based violence, which is just like one of the, one of these one of these terms we love to hear. Because if you genuinely believe that, you know, this is like this extreme form of misogyny and queerphobia that we've never seen before because of these completely barbaric people, then it's like, oh, well then why would you just deport every, like so many, it's just like, it makes no sense. Why wouldn't you let queer people in? Why wouldn't you let, you know what I mean? It just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I think that's the thing. There's so many contradictions and, you know, and then just like one more thing on that honor-based violence discourse. It's just that like, hey, if we just like called all domestic violence, domestic violence, like what would happen? Like, would we actually have to, you know, fund services to support survivors? Would we actually have to like hold accountable justice system that doesn't ever help those who are victims? But instead you just go on a base. We don't get that. That's something so cultural and like it's weird and nothing to do with any kind of form of misogyny we've ever seen before. But yeah, the point you made is actually one of the funniest ones that like if you were so concerned, why would you continue to violate these people's rights? (laughs) Um, But yeah, that's a classic. So, Okay, so I think at this stage, like, there's just so much that we've said and and so much, I hope, for people to reflect on. I certainly feel that's a lot for me to reflect on. And the only question that really remains for me is whilst this this binary is well and truly in the pin, what is what are we left with? Like, what is a better way for us to go forward? We don't want to keep applying this binary of liberal and fascist. So could you suggest something that may be a better framework for, for us to think about the world, whether that's some of the things we've talked about today, whether it's you want us to think more about genocidal conditions or colonialism or, or anything else? I mean, what could you suggest that we really need to be putting our attention to as opposed to this binary? Yeah, so I think it's whatever system we're under, the recognition that, you know, capitalism, neoliberalism, white supremacy, racism basically underpins it all. 
you know it's it's a question of whether it is being spoken out loud in, in, in under fascist kind of regime or whether it's being um cloaked by human rights and uh, the liberal order and kind of just always trying to identify you know wh- you know who has access to resources who has access to wealth and you know kind of like if we understand that those inequalities exist everywhere then i think we'll be able to like actually start thinking about making structural change and that is a way out of this that's amazing thank you so so much i feel like yeah particularly that final point i think that that's given us a lot to think about well thank you so so much it's been a real pleasure to have you and um yeah, I can't wait for everyone to go throw liberal and fascism, liberal, liberalism and fascism <laughs> into their own personal bin. But yeah, thanks for joining me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Breaking Binaries. I hope you, like me, can take something from our guest this week. Look out for episodes fortnightly, and if you enjoy, please share. The music you've been hearing is made by an old high school friend that came through, so shout out to Violence Jack at, at GetViolenceJackOnline. Thanks to all my guests for chatting to me every week and helping us think a little more critically and I hope humbly about our world. I do believe that part of the way we transform the world is by transforming the ways we think about it. Thank you for listening. I've been your host, Sahima Mansul Khan. Bye.